Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your amazing goodness to us. Thank you so much for who you are. You know, the wonderful God who created us, who created this universe, who gives us every breath that we breathe. And thank you for Jesus. Lord, as we finish this series of looking at why Jesus, we pray that you would thrill our hearts afresh as we see the future. And we see that we've seen right from the beginning how Jesus is the centre of your plan for salvation and for this earth and beyond. And Lord, we pray by your Holy Spirit, you would thrill us with our future in Christ today. Please take my words and use them for your glory and open our hearts and our minds to understand what you want to say to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have reached the last in this series of talks on why Jesus has to be the only candidate to be the promised Messiah. He's the only solution that God has given us to enable us to be saved. If you've followed me this far, if you haven't heard them, they're online, but I hope if you've got this far, you are now convinced that there really is no other way to be saved beyond having a living faith in Jesus Christ and his death for us and his resurrection from the dead. We have seen, to start with, how the, in, how the patriarchs in Jesus pointed to the coming Messiah. We saw how the, the, the Mosaic law pointed to the coming Messiah. So did the prophets. We've looked in the Gospels and seen how Jesus came, how he did all that was required of him to fulfill what had been prophesied about him. That he died, he rose again to die no more. And then last time we looked in the epistles and Acts and we saw many convincing statements to show that Jesus must be the only saviour. There is no other. And the work that Jesus came to do has been done. But there's still more. Because Jesus is coming back to reign and his glorious victory will be plainly seen. And once again, Jesus is unique and the only one who qualifies to complete God's purposes into the future for eternity. The statistical odds of one person fulfilling the prophecies that related to Jesus at his first coming are so utterly impossible that on a mathematical basis alone, Jesus really has to be the only one who was sent by God to be the Messiah. It's trillions, one in trillions. It is mathematically impossible unless he really is the one. But one passage that gives us a link between the present and the future, I can't see the screen so I hope it's changing, um, is in Revelation chapter 1 where John saw that the, the risen, glorified Jesus Christ. And we saw John's re, uh, reaction to this in verses 17 to 18. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. 
I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. And Jesus himself is here proclaiming his deity as the first and the last. And John fell to the ground in awe and worship, as we should as well. And this is how Jesus is now and how he will be forever. And one of the problems that Israel had in recognizing Jesus as their Messiah when he came 2,000 years ago was that so many of the messianic scriptures looked to the Messiah coming as king, to his glorious kingdom. But they didn't appreciate the impact of the other passages that spoke of the Messiah as a suffering servant. By contrast, what much of the church has done is to focus on what Jesus has achieved as the suffering servant and then rising again to show God's acceptance of his death for mankind. But large parts of the church have forgotten the other half, that Jesus as Israel's Messiah must come back to set up his kingdom because there's so many prophecies that talk about him having a kingdom here on this earth to reign visibly. And what Israel's prophets saw regarding the kingdom must occur for God's word to be fulfilled. And the church lost its way on this as it moved away from its Jewish roots towards a Gentile context, particularly as Rome made Christianity its official religion and merged it with many of its, of its pagan roots. And we need to get back to the Bible. And what John was given, um, sorry, when John was given that amazing vision of worship in heaven in Revelation 5, we see in verses 9 to 10. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on earth. And this is Jesus being worshipped in heaven. He is the only one who has redeemed people by his blood. We don't have here any substitute standing. No other religious leader but the true Son of God, who alone is worthy of our praise. Jesus is the only candidate there in heaven being worshipped. And although it has become something of a hot potato in many church circles, the next major event, prophetically, is the rapture of the church that is coming. The Bible teaches that this can occur at any time, and there are no specific prophecies that must occur before it. But to fit the rapture in with our purpose in this series of showing that Jesus must be the only one upon whom our faith is centred. We must consider the purpose of the rapture. One of its purposes is to rescue living Christians uh, from uh, before the horror of the tribulation that is coming on the earth. 
But that can't be its primary purpose because actually most of the church has died. They're not in danger from the tribulation. They, they have passed from this life and they're enjoying presence with the Lord already. But what most Christians miss is that the rapture is our wedding to Jesus Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And we know that, dare I say, perhaps too often in little more than a vague way. But we are the bride of Christ. We are engaged to him. And of course, in the Jewish wedding scenario, that's a binding agreement. And our Saviour Jesus is never going to break that agreement. Hallelujah. But the Bible teaches that, that, that Jesus will come to collect his bride at the rapture. And Jesus taught his disciples about this during the evening before he was crucified. John chapter 14, 1 to 3. Let your heart, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now I've spoken about the Jewish wedding customs at the time of Jesus uh, before, but here Jesus is, is using betrothal language of the day. He's looking for the time when he will come to collect his bride. And as people who are betrothed to Jesus, there is no, other, no one else for us who would fit the bill to take us as a bride. These promises are made by no other faith leader. And when the church has gone, then God will revert to reckoning time according to his dealings with Israel, as was the case before the church started on the day of Pentecost. And the Bible tells us that at the end of the seven-year period of tribulation that will come upon the earth, Jesus will return as our conquering king. Hallelujah. Is anyone excited, looking forward to that? And we get this in Revelation 19, 11 to 16. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Please note, God doesn't send Buddha or Krishna or Mohammed back to earth, no disrespect to them. He sends his victorious son, Jesus Christ, the one who has conquered death and sin, the one who alone is entitled to reign in righteousness 
and to destroy God's enemies. No one else will be entrusted with dispensing the fierceness and the wrath of God. Only Jesus has made it possible for people to avoid that wrath by dying in our place to take the punishment that was due to us. So it's entirely fitting that it's Jesus who will dispense the fierceness of God's wrath against those who have rejected the salvation that is now freely available to all who will accept it and receive it. It's a glorious gospel, but there is that sting in the tail for those who will reject it. At the beginning of Revelation 20, we see the imprisonment of Satan, which will be a wonderful thing, verses 1 to 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more uh, until the thousand years are finished. But after these things he must be released a little while. Such is the authority of the presence of Jesus there, but it only takes, as far as we can tell, an ordinary angel to bind Satan in the bottomless pit. And one of the glorious things of the thousand-year reign of Jesus is that with Satan bound, he will be unable to deceive the nations until after the thousand-year period is over. To my mind, this is one of the serious shortcomings of amillennialism, which is the teaching that we are in the kingdom now, because I don't know about you, I think Satan's pretty active at the moment. He's deceiving the nations rather severely. I don't think we can be in the kingdom as Jesus is going to be when he reigns on earth. Firstly, the king is absent. You can't say also that Satan is unable to deceive the nations. There's so much deception around and it's getting worse. And at the end of that thousand-year reign of Jesus, there will be a short rebellion led by Satan as he is briefly released from his confinement in the bottomless pit but that will quickly be squashed by God. And the immediate outcome of that is that Satan will be cast into the lake of fire, where he will be tormented forever, unable to cause any further problems to believers, unable to cause any further problems to God's eternal purposes. It will then be time for the judgment of unbelievers at the great white throne. Revelation 20, 11 to 15. I think this is an awesome passage. And thankfully, if we are believers, it won't affect us. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before, the, before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. 
It's an awesome scene. It's Jesus on the throne, and we know from the Gospels that God has entrusted judgment to his Son. The false leaders of other religions will not be doing the judgment, but it's Jesus Christ, the only one who is God's Messiah, God's own Son. And dare I say it, the false leaders and teachers will be amongst those being judged. What we see is that no one will be left held by death. All believers of every age will be, sorry, all unbelievers, mustn't get that wrong, all unbelievers of every age will be gathered here. And Jesus will be entirely just in his judgment. And the destiny of each unbeliever will be the lake of fire, where there is eternal torment. It's what every human, apart from Jesus, actually deserves. But because of Jesus' death on the cross, those who have trusted him for salvation will be saved from it. Jesus, God's only Son, the only Messiah, Jesus is the one who has taken the judgment that we deserved. And he is the one, therefore, who is entitled to be the judge of those who reject what is done for them. Their works won't be able to save them, for their works will be insufficient to satisfy God's holy and righteous character. And once again, we see the uniqueness of Jesus here, visibly approved by God the Father to be the judge, having reigned on earth with justice and truth. And once everything sinful has been dealt with, God is then able to move into the eternal state when we will see the new heavens and the new earth. This is where it gets really exciting for us. The earth has been badly tainted by sinful man. It's been badly tainted by a lot of demonic activity and influence. So the earth needs to be remade to a place that is untainted by sin for eternity. All the effects of the fall will be removed. But the same applies to the heavens. For even God's throne room, as well as earth's atmosphere and space, have been tainted by the fall, because Satan rebelled right at the beginning, in God's presence in heaven, when he persuaded a third of the angels to rebel against God. So that needs cleansing and remaking as well, enabling truly perfect environment to be there for eternity. There'll be nothing impure. We're, we're so sort of grounded in, in, in a fallen world that we, we, we almost accept sin as what goes on when it's sort of what happens. But there it'll be pure. It'll be holy, untainted, unspoilt. And there'll be a truly perfect environment. Man's trying to sort out the environment at the moment, but there's a change coming when God is going to remake it all, and then it really will be perfect. And as we might expect, Jesus will have a prominent role in the new heavens and earth. Once more, showing us that he is the only one qualified by God for the role. We've seen it right from the beginning and now right to the end. He's the only one who is qualified for that role. He also has the greater glory because he has conquered sin and rebellion and drawn to himself all those who have truly responded to his invitation of love to enjoy him forever. And as always, Jesus is unique in this because he is God's son and always has been God's appointed Messiah for this role. 
Then in Revelation 21, we read in verses 5 to 7, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And the word that John uses for new here, and also in verse 1 where it refers to a new heaven and new earth, is new in character rather than new in time. There's two different Greek words. It's new in character. For the first time in human history, other than the brief period before the fall, there will be untainted freshness and beauty, both in creation and in community. No arguments, no sadness, no friction between people, just pure harmony with Jesus at the centre of it all. We gain more in Jesus than we ever lost in Adam. So please don't settle for second best here on earth. We have the best yet to come. The glory and the beauty to come far surpass what we know now. And it will be forever because we will be with God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And they are eternal, so if we're going to have a relationship with them, we've got to be eternal too. And because Jesus is our bridegroom, and he never becomes stale or worn out, so with him we will know eternal freshness. Another reason that we need a resurrection body. Now he offers, in this passage, the water of life freely to him who thirsts. And the refreshment from that must surely be beyond our comprehension. And at the risk of repetition, Jesus once again is unique here and any other potential Messiah is distinctly disqualified and will by this time have been judged by Jesus. And then we find another beautiful facet of our future in verses 22 to 24. But I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honour into it. The earthly temple was a place where God could meet with man, where the sacrifices pictured the coming Messiah who would deal with sin for all time. And Jesus has done that work so there's no need of further sacrifice. And believing mankind is now dwelling with God and the purpose behind creation itself in the, living, the living, loving heart of God was that he should dwell with man. So the temple is no longer needed as the presence of God the Father and God the Son are the temple. No other religious leader comes anywhere close to this. It's Jesus who has made it all possible for us to enjoy the very presence of God 
forever. And then we read there's no sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates this amazing place. The Lamb, that's Jesus Christ, is its light. The one who declared that he is the light of the world will very literally be that in the new heavens and earth. Jesus, who spoke light into the original creation, will be the eternal light of the world, forever giving the light of spiritual understanding to his people, as well as just the brightness of light. And then we move into chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible. We see more of the central role of Jesus, the eternal Lamb of God, in verses 1 to 5. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And here the pure river of life flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb, Jesus. And with the source of the water being the throne of God, it must be pure, clean, and abundant. There is eternal wholeness, freshness, and refreshment coming from God and from his Son, Jesus. It's eternally fruitful and wholesome. Jesus is no mere afterthought here, no mere religious leader that you might have in any of the other religions, not one of several or many routes to God, not just a good moral teacher. Jesus is utterly preeminent. He will have all the glory that will not be given to other religious leaders who have done nothing but lead people astray. Jesus has to be the only, the one and only divine Messiah. Messiah. He was there before creation and he will be eternally there, reigning in glory. If that doesn't excite you, then just get on your knees before the Lord and seek him. There has been only one generation in history that's physically seen Jesus. And of that generation, only a tiny fraction of the population saw him then. For Jesus lived and ministered in Israel some 2,000 years ago. Even Moses was denied the ability to see God. We see that in Exodus 33, 20 to, 20 to 23. But he said, this is God, you, shall not see, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. But then we saw in verse 4 of Revelation 22, the occupants of this beautiful place will see his face. That which was not possible before, we will see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. None of the counterfeit mark of the beast here, 
but those who will gladly give their love and their allegiance to the true King of Kings and they will own his name, even on their foreheads. And once again we read that the people need no light from a lamp or the sun because Jesus will be its light. Then in verses 12 to 13, Jesus speaks, And behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Jesus is coming, and when he comes, he will reward those who are his. And the word for quickly could better be translated as suddenly. Jesus is certainly coming, and God's plan is not running late. It's on time. We have no prophecies that Buddha's coming again, nor Krishna, nor Mohammed, or whatever other religious leader you want to worship. They have nothing to reward their followers with. But Jesus is coming, for he lives forever in undiminished power and glory. Jesus describes himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. This is a divine title that Jesus has often taken to himself in the book of Revelation. But for Jesus, it is not presumption, because it is the truth when he uses that term. Only one who is God can truly be the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And it so beautifully describes Jesus, who was there at and before the beginning, and he will be there for eternity future as well. Nothing can diminish his nature, his character, or his being because he is eternally God. He's also man, hallelujah, so he can sympathize with us, and he's died for us as man. Then Jesus spoke again in verse 16. I have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And having sent his angel to convey the message of this book, Jesus is therefore and thereby giving his authentication to the message. It's true because it comes from Jesus. It's trustworthy because it comes from Jesus. And Jesus also confirms here that he is of the correct lineage to be the Messiah. He is the root and the offspring of David. As God, Jesus is David's creator. As man, Jesus is descended from David. And that fulfills a messianic prophecy from Isaiah 11 verse 1 that says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And that's Jesus. And as we've so often seen in this series, Jesus is once more fulfilling what was prophesied of the Messiah. And then Jesus describes himself as the bright and morning star. And that's another messianic prophecy from Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall come to rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. The morning star is usually considered to be Venus, which heralds the new day. But Jesus is the pioneer of the new eternal day of the new heavens, the new earth. And 
I trust what we have done in this series of talks is to look at an overview of the Bible from beginning to end. And that overview has focused on Jesus Christ, who was promised from the beginning because of the plight of mankind that resulted in Adam choosing sin instead of obedience, self instead of God. And that choice has meant that every person who has ever lived stands condemned before God, who cannot look upon any sin because he, God, is totally righteous. Only a sinless person could take the place of sinless mankind so that God's holy character can be satisfied. And there was only one option open to God, to send his own son, who we know to be Jesus Christ. And the Bible is really an outworking of how God achieved that, because he has made salvation available to all, if only they will accept it by faith. There can be only one way to God, and that's faith in Jesus Christ. And just as he has been central to God's purposes throughout eternity past, he will be central to God's purposes throughout eternity future, as we've seen. It's a master plan that surpasses all that man could devise, because it covers all of the necessary issues so that God's character is satisfied, yet sin is adequately dealt with. Let's end, almost, with Revelation 22:17. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. At the beginning of that verse, it seems there's an invitation, a plea for Jesus to come. Because it's he who gives the water of life freely. It's an open invitation to receive salvation from Jesus. He will not exclude anyone who truly comes to him. But an invitation is both an opportunity and a responsibility. If we decline an invitation, we only have ourselves to blame. And that picks up in Isaiah 55 verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. What Jesus offers us is free, but it certainly isn't cheap. It cost him everything. No one else in history can offer what Jesus offers, for he is the only one who can possibly be God's promised Messiah. So be thirsty for him but drink deeply of the pure, clean, living water that he alone can give. He will never disappoint you, now or throughout eternity. And just to close completely, let me just quote something from Andrew Murray. He says, there's a danger of our being more occupied with the things that are coming than with him who is to come. It's so easy, isn't it, to see, oh, these things are happening in the world. They point to Jesus coming. But are we looking for things or signs, or are we looking for him who is coming?
It's Jesus we look to. It's it. Andrew Murray says, Nothing but deeply humble waiting on God can save us from this mistake. Be sure you wait on God now, while waiting for the revelation of his Son from heaven. The hope of that glorious appearing will strengthen you in waiting upon God for what he is to do in you now. The same omnipotent love that is to reveal that glory is working in you even now to prepare you for it. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what we've been able to see through this series, that Jesus is the only true, genuine contender to the role of the Son of God, to the role of Messiah, the only means of our salvation, right through the Bible, beginning to end and beyond. Lord, he is the only one. And Father, we thank you. Thank you that you've opened our eyes to who Jesus is. But if there's anyone here who doesn't know him, if there's anyone watching online who doesn't know him, please turn and accept him. Turn and give your life to him. Because only he can forgive your sins. Only he can rescue you from God's righteous judgment that must be applied to all who have refused the offer of salvation. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.